Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a modern campaign agency dedicated to using data-driven grassroots organising to build winning campaigns and make the world a better place. Whether you're in business, issue-based campaigns, or an organisation driving change in your community, Dunstreet develops strategies to overcome challenges by connecting people that share the same values and organises them to achieve common goals from the ground up. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Welcome to episode 14 or maybe 15, I'm losing track, of Socially Democratic, uh, a weekly left political and cultural podcast that will dive into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On today's episode, we have the Victorian State uh, Labor Minister for Family Violence, Women and Youth, Gabrielle Williams. And today we're going to talk to her, not just about her actual portfolio, but a little bit about her background as well. Um, Her and I share very similar Celtic uh, heritage, and we thought we'd have a bit of a yak um, about um, her background, but in particular, some things that she did that I think would be very interesting to our audiences when she was uh, going through university and doing her uh, her um, honours and did some stuff around uh, terrorism um, and a whole bunch of things that relate to all the troubles in the north of Ireland. So that should be a great episode, and I hope you enjoy that. Um, don't forget that uh, to follow socially democratic make sure that you subscribe via apple Podcasts, spotify and stitcher uh, and if you're on apple podcast please give us a review and leave a rating and to keep up to date with all the latest episodes of socially democratic you should follow us on the dunn street social media platforms on facebook twitter instagram and linkedin let's get to this week's episode <music> Gabrielle Williams, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you for having me. Uh, I have been wanting to do this podcast for a while. Um, a number of our mutual friends in the Labor Party said, you need to interview Gabrielle Williams. <laughs> uh, and I thought about doing um, uh, delegating uh, the research role to a very extensive research department at Dunn Street. <laughs> C- comprising of one Stephen Donnelly. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I forgo, for, I decided to forgo that because I thought, well, I'm actually going to make this the initial part of this podcast the research project. Okay, good. Uh, because I think the re- part of the reason why people have suggested, Stephen, you need to interview uh, your good self is because I think they've just obviously identified a shared cultural heritage connection that yes. you and I have. Um, and uh, I thought, well, let's find out about that today. Sure. Um, and the great thing about doing these long-form podcasts are that you don't necessarily have to spend the whole time talking about, obviously, your portfolio as a politician or the, or the things that you do every day in your job, and we will do that in this uh, podcast later on. But at the start, I just thought it'd be useful for our listeners to get an idea about who you are and where you came from sure. and, and your background and, and some of the things you've done before you entered into politics um, so what is the origin story of Gabrielle Williams then? No, the origin story, that's a, always a tough one to, um, to fully identify. Well, I, for starters, I was born, uh, born in, in Melbourne, uh, born and raised in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne. So I grew up actually originally in Monterna, so outer east. Um, 
uh, to a, a family. Uh, my mum was Mulholland, so she was of Irish stock, and my dad uh, is obviously the, where the Williams comes from, who is from sort of English and, and Welsh heritage. But uh, we grew up in a in a tradition which, as I got older, I increasingly realised was kind of very uh, very Celtic uh, in its in its sort of sense of humour and tradition. And obviously, growing up as a as a Catholic too, probably contributed to that. Um, so I went through Catholic schools uh, my, my whole life. My mum's Catholic, my dad's not, and I didn't know dad wasn't Catholic until I was 16, uh, which is quite hilarious. Did he keep that from you? Or... <laughs> well, he attended Mass with us, you know, every week, and he just, um, neither he nor mum would go up to receive communion, and I just thought it was just something adults didn't do, mm. you know. Um, I later learned that there's a couple of things at play there. There was, I think... Um, when mum was more devout than she is these days, uh, I think there was a view that she'd sort of committed some kind of mortal sin in marrying a non-Catholic. So she, <laughs> I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but yep. um, she'd probably be horrified to hear me say that, but, you know, something akin to that. Um, so didn't go. But over time it was just a matter of, well, you know, if she went up then it would draw attention to the fact that dad didn't, so neither of them did. And That's so hysterical. I had no, yeah, so I had no reason to, to know. And I remember when he just dropped it into conversation when I was a teenager. Like, <laughs> I was... Put your, seat, put your seatbelt on, by the way, I'm not Catholic. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I sort of looked at him and said, what? Hang on, then what are you? And he looked at me and he said, well, uh, well, uh, Church of England, but I'm actually an atheist. Um, which, so fair play to him for sitting through uh, yeah. ma- mass for so many years, uh, you know, with four small children. Um, you know, yeah, so he, it, it was quite controversial uh, when they got married that he wasn't Catholic. I can um, imagine. Yeah, which is people forget in Australia, I think, that that was, that was a thing um, and not that long ago, really, mm. that sort of level of controversy. And, you know, the sort of judgment that came from, I mean, certainly from elements of his family about the fact that he was, you know, uh, marrying a Catholic woman, marrying down, as they would have seen. <laughs> uh, you know, there was all sorts of snobbery that attached itself to that. So I sort of realised through our... Um, uh, through our Catholicism and through uh, a strong connection that we had to my mother's side of the family in particular, that there was very much this sort of Celtic tradition running through, even if they didn't realise it. I don't think my mum realises just how uh, sort of Irish uh, her, you know, so much of the way she operates is, you know, and certainly her sense of humour and the sense of humour of her families and family and storytelling. Was she born here in Australia? She's born here, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've actually, it was actually her grandfather that was, it was my great-grandfather. We've been here for a long time. Um, But, uh, you know, that sort of, the tradition is hard to shake, I think, when you've come from 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 an Irish Catholic tradition in particular. You know, so, so much of it just filters through. Uh, generations, which is probably why when I eventually went there myself and spent significant time there, that it, I just felt at home because it was just, yep. it, you know, it, all all the the sort of cultural quirks and and the people were just like the people I grew up with, uh, and and the the things that they did with the things that I did growing up. It was all um, very very familiar. What are the, some of the things that you did that, in growing up that uh, had that cultural connection or that influence? So when I think about mm. it as a child. Um, the wolf tones got played a lot in our household uh, or Foster and Ellen when mum got control of the, uh, the, the radiogram. Mm. But uh, small things over that journey, like, I mean, for Foster and Ellen, most of their songs are basically historical content, you know, yeah, stories, yeah. right? So yeah. you'd hear those songs and then you would ask your parents, 
you know, what's that all about? So yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's an education that happens whilst culturally these things are happening in the background that yeah. you don't sort of pay attention to, but then you start to. What were your, the things that influenced you? Or? Well, things, my things are more really the way our family operated, almost the matriarchal nature of, of any family network, you know, mother at the centre, uh, you know, she always knew what was going on with everyone uh, and it was very a very close family. Everyone always knew... <laughs> You, you know, what you'd done on the weekend or if you'd been in trouble, you know. Yeah. It was kind of like the, you know, there was this sort of beating drum <laughs> kind of uh, tendency among extended family as well. Um, and even, so the construct of the family itself and the way it operated was was just um, very Celtic, I now, I now realise. Um, and then there was sort of the, the politics was the other thing, you know, just how um, political uh, family life was and yep. the sorts of discussions that took place, which I realised as I got older weren't the sort of discussions that would take place in other people's um, families. And there was always, um, even though the sort of Irish link wasn't always necessarily as overt as, say, you know, the Wolf Tones playing or re- Rebel music, it was later on for me and I probably educated them on a lot of it. But um, the politics of, of Ireland, the politics of discrimination uh, was very much something that was discussed um, yep. and, and was sort of a part of a, a intergenerational identity, yep. uh, which, you know, I later learned going back to Ireland was, you know, very similar there as well, obviously much closer to them living there, but it was certainly something that was, um, for me, a part, of, a part of my childhood growing up and a part of our story as a family. So both your parents were Labor voters historically? Yes, yep. yeah, yeah. And my mum's uncle uh, was a guy called Ted McCormick, who was president of the Waterside Workers Federation. So she had sort of multiple generations of political and, and union activity in her family, uh, which meant that, you know, uh, particularly for me, I'm the youngest of four girls and after a bit of a gap. So she had three under three, three very close together, and then a five-year gap in me, uh, which meant that I spent a lot more time with the adults um, listening to their conversations. And particularly when we were at my grandparents' place, that meant a lot of conversations about you know, things that were going on in the union movement or things that were going on in Labor politics at different points in time. And, and those were just conversations that were run of the mill, uh, which I probably, looking back now, realise um, the significance of in terms of my own pathway. Interestingly, my sisters yeah. wouldn't remember that. They don't think we had an overly political um, childhood, but that's because they were all playing with each other <laughs> and I was left in the yeah. room with the adults. So it's quite interesting in one family to have very different experiences. I... I, uh, I completely understand what you're talking about there. The gap between myself and my nearest sibling is nine years. Oh, wow. And so, oh, yeah, I think it was a mistake. <laughs> Mum's listening to this right now as well, uh, <laughs> and she'll be denying that. Um, but Afterthought, not mistake. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hence why I'm called the golden child amongst my siblings. Um, and... Uh, their experience with my parents is fundamentally different to the experience that I had with my parents because yeah. I they had all moved to Melbourne. Right. And so I had my parents all to myself. Yeah. Which I think I was annoying because I would ask lots of questions yes. all the time. That was me. Yeah, yeah. Right, there you go. So there's another <laughs> reason why I needed to do this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you're the youngest. I'm the youngest, yeah. Do you think you are the golden child in your – are you considered by the rest of your siblings as the golden child? Uh, no. Oh, probably. Yeah, they'd probably – you know, I, I often joke these days that I, it was sort of like growing up with four mothers, you know, having three, <laughs> having three big sisters. Yeah. And, and even now, you know, you're sort of um, – doesn't matter how old I get, I'll still always be their, their baby sister. So there's still an element of yeah. love and care and, uh, you know, and sort of accommodating – 
accommodating me. You know, it's always, it's quite hilarious. You know, every time there's a family birthday, a niece or a nephew's birthday, I'll always get a text message from one of my sisters saying, it's all right, I picked up something for you to give her or it's all right. Yeah, yeah. Or, you, you know, you can come in with me. Like I'm not capable of doing it myself, <laughs> yeah. which I am, but I think it's just the habit of having done that for a younger sibling your whole life when they're yeah. really small. But as you get older, the sort of habit, the habit sticks. So I'm perpetually sort of, um, you know, fighting for my own competency in a fan, in a family context. Yeah, okay. I can do this. I can go to a shop and I can I can pick out a present. You know? See, I'm the other one. I just I have just continued to let that happen. Oh. <laughs> at, yeah, at the tender age of 44, I'm still the child in our family. <laughs> um I I uh wanted to ask you about uh you, you mentioned actually just before that in your later years that you started to immerse yourself more in your own, sort of try and discover your own uh, cultural identity. Tell us how that came about and what was the driver of that? Yeah, sure. Look, it was um, ultimately academic. I found myself um, studying political science at Monash University and as a part of that uh, was doing quite a lot of work in the counterterrorism space. Um, and, uh, you know, through that work kind of was drawn back to the Irish experience, particularly um, the conflict in, in the north of Ireland, and uh, which gave me the opportunity that, to then do an honours year um, thesis uh, for it. And quite unusually, um, I decided that, well, we came up with a topic, I came up with the topic about... Um, which is essentially a piece around the psychology of terrorism. And at the time there was, you know, it wasn't that long after 9-11... There was all this pathologising of perpetrators of, of politically motivated violence in the mainstream media, lots of language being used, you know, they're mad, crazy, whatever it was, which um, I felt and still do uh, feel is quite dangerous because it oversimplifies the complexity of a problem and it means then if that sort of language infects policy, then you're not actually dealing um, with those issues in the way that you need to to get a genuine and, and meaningful response that, you know, ultimately... Um, builds uh, happy happy societies. And so um, I decided uh, in, in looking at this piece around why people get involved in politically motivated violence and, and then therefore um, why they also choose to turn away from it, that uh, the north of Ireland was a, was a great um, case study. Uh, and this was 2004, so it was a few years, you know, it was... You know, still pretty raw. It was still pretty raw. And keeping in mind the last prisoners were only released in 2000, mm. um, you know, I was young, I was 21, so I kind of, I don't think I fully appreciated back then just how recent it was, mm. but it was a very different place then 15 years ago than it, than it is now, uh, and it was certainly a lot more edgy and um, the people I was uh, there to see, and I'll get to that, uh, were certainly um, in a different stage of their lives than they are now. So fundamentally, I, I just decided I was going to go over there, and the best way to talk to find out why people got involved was to ask them. Yeah. It was that simple. Um, I think that raised a few eyebrows at Monash as to yeah, why this uh, why this young woman. That was my question, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was sort of you know, how do you propose to do this? And I kind of thought, I oh, don't know, I'll find a way, and um, <laughs> and did, uh, and so ended up um, accessing uh, an ex-prisoner organisation called Coistra, and um, originally they said look, we'll give you access to one person and one person only. Your, your project's not a priority, but, hey, here's a list of names and you can choose um, choose from them who, who you might like to speak to. Mm. And so I looked at the list of names and did my bit of Google research on each of them 
and then one name stood on, it. on Netspace too. Yeah, 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 probably, yeah, yeah. Wasn't you know, it's very slow, <laughs> uh, slow research. Yeah. Probably could have just gone to the library. Yeah. Um, and uh, and one name stood out in particular who was on the nineteen eighty one hunger strike. Um, he where ten men died on that hunger strike. He would have been eleventh uh, in line to die. He did seventy days. Uh, without food, um, which if you put that in context, Bobby Sands died on 60, at 66 days, so 70 is, um, was certainly at the more mm. sort of extreme end in terms of time. Uh, and uh, his mother eventually pulled him off um, the hunger strike, which is why he's alive today. Uh, but, you know, still has some uh, some sort of physical, you know, scars, if you like, yeah. health health uh, complaints that, that stem from that time. And so I, I chose him. I thought, you know, that would be an interesting uh, Why did you choose him out of that list? Um, I suppose because he was, you know, so close and seminally involved in a moment in history that I think globally was really significant. Mm. I mean, the fact that you've got a Bobby Sands Street in Tehran, you know, yep. <laughs> this is this was um, oh. a moment in history that I think really resonated with people around the, around the world. And I remember for my family, you know, um, in, in various political conversations, my mum talking about just listening to the radio every day in, in 81 to hear how things were going mm. and, you know, and going through that journey of just desperately hoping something would happen so these men weren't, weren't dying on hunger strike. She found it really gruelling as a person of Irish heritage yep. just watching this day in, day out and feeling that there was a real cruelty to, to all of it. It's also the first time that uh, the, the political path of Irish republicanism was just uncovered or discovered or realised that there is an opportunity here down yeah, that path Yeah, where it was well. overt, you know, because, yeah. of course, they ran Bobby Sands for Parliament mm. while he was while he was on hunger strike after the death of, I think, the MP that died was, was it Frank Maguire? I think his yeah, name was, he, yeah. He was a, but he wasn't, he was a um, SDLP. SDLP, yeah, MP. And I think quite well liked, mm. well respected, but, um, you know, him passing away during, in the middle of the hunger strike and then giving um, Bobby the chance uh, to... To, to run and get elected and get elected yeah uh, was really changed a lot of things and you know I know remember speaking to my family here and them saying you know there was this sense of um, elation when he won that election just because they thought it would save his life everyone mm. thought it'd be over you couldn't you know you, you couldn't let <laughs> you're, an, you're an MP now you're an MP now <laughs> that's right it's all going to end and this um, the whole kind of cruel episode of, you know will, will be over and sadly we know from history that that's not what happened you know, Bobby died, nine more died after him and there was... So, you know, ha- given his involvement in that, um, he was, you know, I thought that he would be an interesting interesting voice. He was also sort of at the time sort of actively tied up and trying to find uh, the Columbia Three who would, uh, you know, who were those three uh, former prisoners who were um, in Columbia. I think they were claiming at the time, my memory might be a bit off, but I think they were claiming that they were... Uh, or, or their, their version of events was that they were there to oversee the peace process between the FARC guerrilla rebels and and um, and the Colombian administration, and and then they got picked up and accused of training terrorists, which they uh, to this day insist they weren't doing, mm. and um, and then thrown in jail, and then they went missing. So he was still quite involved in a lot of the ex- prisoner community and peace building work, and um, uh, and was also uh, you know. Uh, 
a playwright and, uh, you know, yeah. go, and, and had written a film, co-written a film with a guy called Brian Campbell. So he had a lot of creative projects that he was doing, which made him quite unusual. He had a PhD, which also made him very unusual that he got after he got out of jail. He was just an interesting um, character in his own right and someone who was able to, I suppose, articulate his own story and uh, and the political context of that story well, which for an interview is, is perfect. Yep. So I got my one, you know, my one interview with the one person that they allowed me access to and then... Um, after that interview was done, uh, he sort of said, "Did you want to? Did you want to speak to some other people? I'll hook you in." And then one turned into kind of ten, and, wow. and then all of a sudden, you know, I was um, you know, sort of effectively meeting with some of the highest profile, you know, in some cases, ex-prisoners uh, in the north of Ireland. So it was an incredible experience, and and one that probably was contributed to this um, sense of connection to to my own. Uh, history and uh, and heritage, particularly when ultimately you were talking to people about their experience of discrimination uh, and and you know structural discrimination that was present in in Northern Ireland in that sort of leading up to sixty nine mm. period, uh, and you know how personally I guess that was felt because so many of the stories that they were talking they were telling me uh, were resonating with me uh, because of stories I'd heard from my own uh, family. For example, you know, my mum and my grandmother didn't ever uh, buy sanitarium pro- uh, products. They weren't, they weren't allowed in our household because sanitarium didn't employ Catholics mm. at a policy. And that was in Australia. I yeah. mean, you know, and, and yet I was hearing to a much greater and more dramatic extent um, from these people in, in the north of Ireland about, you know, um, blatantly discriminatory employment practices, you know, the biggest working class employer in Belfast being Harlan Wolf. I think it was about 14,000 employees that had a no Catholic policy. Mm. I was seeing ads in newspapers that, that had, like every ad just about in the newspapers from that time had Catholics need not apply. Mm. You know, you were shut out of, um, uh, of the police force, out of most kind of public sector yeah. workforces. Access to housing. Access to housing. Gerrymandering. Yeah. Blatant gerrymandering. You know, you were, you know, and and electoral rules which were deliberately designed to to disenfranchise Catholics. So, you know, you could only have, I think it was two adults in any household, might have been more, in any household uh, over the age of 18 voting. Well, well, when you've got a really large family, (laughs) whereas most Catholics tended to, um, and you might have, you know, you might have 10 kids and five of them might be over the age of 18, well, you know, their votes were effectively being Mm. excluded. Um, Derry you know, City, was, famously, the Derry City Council, which the town of Derry, I think population-wise, was yeah. split um, 60-40 in favour of the nationalist community, yeah. yet only returned three out of 17, I think, on, that's the, right. on the council. Yeah, 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 that's right. And that was happening all over the place mm. and very deliberate attempts to, to shut um, one half of the community out, you know, politically, uh, which, you know, and then, of course, you know, that you, you sort of, you, you got a very firm view about... Um, this being a significant civil rights issue, which was how people were seeing it mm. for a large period of time, really, until until Bloody Sunday, when all of a sudden, you know, a bunch of university students um, leading a civil rights march, uh, you know, were effectively shot down uh, by the paratroopers, and, and which changed the conflict um, significantly and turned it into a, a very, very bloody one, mm. uh, you know, much to the... Um, well, you know, it, it was a great tragedy, I think, and a, and a very, very long, long tragedy. You know, thirty years of of warfare and and um, and death and destruction and trauma, which the community is still recovering from now. But hearing those stories and and you know being able to draw um, you know some level of comparison and think, oh well, you know, this is 
this is a story of, of my forebears in, in, in many ways and it was um, to a much lesser extent still the story of, of, of some Catholics even in Australia at different points um, yeah. in, in time, much, as I said, to a much lesser extent. But it was hard uh, not to feel some sort of cultural connection with this place. Um, but even aside from all of that, I just fell in love with Belfast. It yep. was just such an amazing place. And, and if you're a, a political person, it was such a politically charged environment. You know, you hear kids talking about politics, you know, like it was in the street and you think, oh, this is unusual. Uh, you know, everybody was so plugged in. Mm, it's um, a highly engaged environment. Highly engaged in, in a way that I suppose only um, societies impacted by conflict can be, mm. you know, they're the ones that tend to, you know, it's such a high stakes game, you know, people have suffered so much. So, yeah. and I think there's this awareness that, you know, uh, what happens at a political level is just so very important yeah. uh, because, you know, they've lived it. It's a good life and death in some of these situations. The, um, when you were interviewing uh, the hunger striker, did you ask him about, because his mother took him off yes. the strike, uh, what, what, were, what was his feelings towards his mother at the time mm. and then over time? Yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm assuming she's not with us today. No, so. she's not. Um, it's a question that he often gets asked, and I'm always <laughs> reluctant to answer it for him, um, but his, his, his own comments about it um, are sort of readily available. Uh, but he, no, he had no ill feeling towards his mother for taking him mm. off. In fact, he tells uh, this story um, about, uh, it must have been when he was... I might get my timing slightly right and I'm sure he'll correct me if he ever was to listen to this. <laughs> but uh, I think it was about day 68 and they call your family in because you're effectively close to falling into a coma and, and passing away ultimately. And his uh, father, brother and sister all begged him to come off the hunger strike, but his mother never did, never made the ask. But what she did say to him uh, was, uh, and it might have been, you know, as they were on that, I think it was on that day, but... She said to him, you've got to do what you've got to do, son, and I've got to do what I've got to do. Hmm. And so that was, you know, effectively if the decision was was going to come to her, she was very clear about what she had yep. to do and, and she wasn't going to let her son die. Hmm. Uh, they, she, they were not a Republican family, I should say, as well. So, right. No, which many of them didn't come from Republican families. There's sort of this assumption that everyone must have been steeped in a, in a deeply political family environment to inspire them to then you know, join a paramilitary, um, and that wasn't the case. Uh, for, for um, So it was quite an unusual thing for his family to, yep. <laughs> I guess, watch, watch that, um, watch he, he, him go down the pathway that he did, um, but probably also puts into perspective his mother's decision as well. So he was also very close to his mother. Um, so, you know, I asked him that same question when I interviewed him well, 15 years ago. It's the obvious, it's the obvious one, question, isn't yeah. it? No, and he said, no, he didn't feel have any ill feeling towards her. He fully understand understood um, why she had to do what she uh, she did, um, and he adored her. He just thought she was wonderful. She died um, a couple of years after the hunger strike while he was still in, in jail. Mm. Uh, so he never really got to have any kind of meaningful conversation with her, which is uh, quite sad from mm. an inter interpersonal uh, perspective for anyone with their parents to be in, in that position. Fast forward to 2019, and I think you just recently were back in Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a couple of months ago, as was I actually a couple, over the Christmas break. Yeah, um, I saw your photos. Thought we'd um, <laughs> go and experience uh, the best of um, Irish winter. Yeah, good. Because um, it's no different to the summer. Um, Makes for good whiskey drinking. Yeah, it does actually, which um, 
we tick that bucket. <laughs> uh, um, uh, what? Uh, just walking around the streets of Belfast. Uh, last time I was there was two thousand three. Yeah. Uh, and going back years later. Very different. Yeah. yeah. What were your what, what What were the things that jumped out at you? So sort I of said, oh, there's there's been here's some things that have changed, but here are some Mostly. things that are, that are still the same. It's so much more cosmopolitan than it was. Uh, you know, the tourist, the tourism industry's really taken off. You know, it's that Game, lot, Game, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I was just about to say the, the global phenomena that is Game of Thrones has mm. kind of transformed it. You've got things like Titanic Museum, and um, and there's uh, quite a lot of development going on there too. Uh, so I think the it, it's kind of opened itself up to the world now. The fact that they get tourists now—I mean, you would know from two thousand and three—no one went to Belfast. It wasn't—it wasn't a destination of choice. You know, no. it was still very much you know a, a, a community, a society in the immediate aftermath of a serious conflict. So, and it had that feel about it. Um, it just is, is it feels different now. I mean, I don't know if you managed to get to the cathedral quarter when you were there at all, but there's all this, you know, there's all these funky bars and restaurants have cropped up. Yeah. There's cafes. 15 years ago, try getting a coffee in Belfast. I like, know. it just <laughs> wasn't a thing, you yeah. know, and people didn't go out for dinner. So there was barely any restaurants. There was like Morn Seafoods and. Uh, you know, which was just next to Kelly Sellers or just down yep. the road from Kelly Sellers, which is one of my favourite watering holes down, uh, there. And um, and that was sort of, you know, and a, and a couple of like Chinese Chinese restaurants, Chinese takeaways where, you know, you, you got Chinese food with mushy peas. Yeah. What, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> mushy peas goes with everything. I, I disagree. <laughs> I don't think mushy peas belong with anything. That's the most controversial thing I'm going to say in this podcast. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, it's it's changed enormously, but probably for uh, you know, and you'd be the same, I imagine, given your interest in politics, was how much the younger generation. You've got to remember the 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 generation that voted in the last sort of couple of elections uh, have not um, have not lived in a time of conflict, mm. and we've seen that change. I think the uh, electoral situation there as well. So you've now got the younger generation voting. They were born post-98, post-Good Friday Agreement. They don't remember. They have no living memory of the conflict. Sure, they've heard the stories. They've certainly heard the songs because it's such a big part of of, of Irish culture and the way that they tell their story through music. Um, But they they were more concerned. A lot of the debate had moved on from from uh, nationalist versus unionist or loyalist versus republican, um, that that kind of um, dichotomy to cost of living pressures, yeah. to jobs, to suicide rates. And that's, you know, that's the interesting thing. So you saw, you know, a, a few years ago um, in West Belfast, Sinn Féin lost a seat to people before profit. Mm. You know, and Which would have been unheard of. Yeah, unheard of. You know, it was it was in it was in Republican heartland, and all of a sudden they've lost. And you know, and it was essentially in that time of sort of anti austerity, and you know, people were actually talking about the economy and and as I said, jobs and cost of living and and pressures that were just peacetime problems. And so you've had to see the political um, leadership and and the and the party spectrum shift to to be able to be more well versed in those issues mm. now as well. So it sort of changed the political landscape quite considerably. At the same time, you've got these emerging issues like a, a growing uh, suicide rate. And when I was last there, a, a friend of mine there was saying to me they'd lost, and I've, I've been meaning to check this statistic, uh, but I've heard it a couple of times now since from people there who've been working in the community sector there, say to me uh, they've lost more people in suicide since the end of the Troubles than they did de- from deaths in the Troubles. Wow. 
which is an alarming stat because I think they lost uh, a bit over 3,000 over the course of the Troubles, which means they've lost more than 3,000 people since 1998 by suicide in Northern Ireland for a population that's only, what, one and a half million roughly? Yeah, if, if that. Yeah, is, um, that's, that's quite frightening mm. uh, and it's giving them cause to think about what's driving that. Um, and is that amongst young people or is it not discriminating against sort of, uh, g- uh, you know, genders or age brackets? It seems or? to be, uh, from what I could tell when I was there, men. Um, not just young men, though. Uh, some sort of middle-aged men as well. Yep. So it is, it is, you know, it does sort of shine a light on those sort of day, day-to-day pressures that I think people are, are feeling. And it's still a very high unemployment rate mm. uh, in Northern Ireland, which worries a lot of people because that's when you start getting that sort of feeling of, of disenfranchisement and, and what that leads to and, you know, that concern from those, for even from those actually, especially from those who were formerly involved in the, in the troubles in a... Um, in a combatant sense, so members of paramilitaries, they, they seem to be the one talking about this the most, this concern about uh, young people being um, effectively kind of sucked in by dissident groups mm. uh, and, and told that, you know, the reason they don't have a job is, you know, is because of X, is you know, and that the solution is to join a dissident group and yeah. to, you know, kick off the troubles again, which no one wants to see. Uh, but it's it's very alarming, and as we saw recently with the murder of Lyra McKee uh, in Derry, uh, you know there has been a, a surge in dissident activity around Derry in particular, was, which has got a lot of people concerned. And for the listeners at home, uh, Lyra was a young a journalist. journalist. Yeah, mm, yeah. When we were in, we were actually we were in Dublin, and we we're heading up to the north. The that car bomb went off out the front of the court yeah. in um, in Derry, mm-hmm. um, and it. We were having dinner with a Labor Party colleague um, for the Irish Labor Party yep. uh, at the time, and I sort of asked her of her thoughts on what was going on, and she was just, you know, the the the, the biggest concern that is happening right now, and this is a segue into the next topic of the mm. conversation, was Brexit. Yep. They're super worried about yep. what Brexit will do to not just broadly speaking, the Irish economy, yeah, but also this problem that we have with the border. The border, yeah. Um, and what uh, my partner remarked to me at the time, you know, when when the Brexit debate was happening in 2016, particularly, and it was a very London or more so a very English-centric debate. Yes. Um, no one, certainly in the 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 London establishment and the media, the British media, even sort of raised what would happen if... Brexit happened, yeah. uh, what is going to happen? No one sort of sat down and said, well, what's going to go on with the border across the Irish Sea? Yeah. Um, and maybe even still today, I don't think a lot of people um, outside of Britain are talking about um, Brexit and the mm. implications it's going to have on Irish unity yeah. or, or peace. Um, however, and I know you would have noticed this as well, whether you're in the Republic or you're in the North, that is the number one thing that is dominating the front page of the papers and the nightly yep. news is Brexit and the implications it's going to have. Absolutely, every day. <laughs> it's, it's headlines every day. Um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, on Brexit um, and um, what, what, what were your takeaways whilst you were over there just sort of reading up on it? Yeah, look, it's, um, as you outlined, it's at the front of everybody's mind, both I think in the Republic and in the North. Um, given I spend most of my time in the North when I am there, uh, I think the fear is, I mean, there's obviously those broader economic concerns about what a border, uh, you know, what the implications of a, of a border are, but there's that, I think the, that perhaps the rest of the world doesn't also understand the, the psychological impact of reinstating a border there. Um, you know, most people that live 
uh, in, particularly in the north or in any of those border areas, have very, very um, sort of traumatic memories of there being a border there um, and what that meant for movement across, but also, you know, uh, guards and police and military and, and all those sorts of things, that presence there at the border, when, when that sort of... Um, dissipated when the border was sort of essentially deconstructed post Good Friday, allowing more free movement. It was, you know, it was kind of emblematic of peace. So to talk about reinstating that even in the psyche of a people, mm. it's very, very significant. And I'm not sure even that was really, or I'm still not sure that it is really understood, um, the sorts of fears that that ends up sparking in in people, um, the concern about a return to violence, also not helped by that dissident activity that we were just talking about. You know, you're seeing a rise in dissident activity, you're seeing uh, the prospect of a border being reinstated, um, which for many, you know, it, you know, strikes fear in their hearts, mm. um, and then you know the potential economic impacts um, as well. I mean. Ironically, I mean, there's also another view that's occasionally put forward, which is, uh, you know, Brexit might be the one thing that, um, <laughs> that, that uh, you know, uh, fast-tracks the United Ireland for mm. those who want to take a, you know, for those Republicans who want to take an opt- optimistic view, of course, for loyalists in the North, that's also a worry. So mm. they've kind of got, they're worried on multiple fronts, you yeah. know, what if it is what pushes um, pushes uh, Northern Ireland into becoming a part of the, that broader republic. You know, that, they're concerned about that. Others, uh, Republicans, might be those who want to be optimistic about it, but overwhelmingly, I mean, those are sort of still fringe arguments. It's that concern about what that means, about uh, whether whether a return to violence is, um, you know, is made more likely mm. through that activity, which, you're right, was never a part of the original discussion. So it was never really a discussion about how Brexit... Uh, had an impact off off in, out of England it, itself, uh, and you've seen the Irish government take some pretty, you know, make some pretty bold statements about what they're prepared to yeah. accept and, and and what they're not, particularly around sort of um, border policing at ports, etc. They were pretty blunt in. Well, it's interesting seeing how the European Union or the, the leadership in Brussels have handled these negotiations with the with the British government because they're basically given. Um, uh, uh, the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister, mm. uh, a seat at that table and said, mm. you know, basically, we'll, you lead the negotiations because this is actually going to have a bigger impact on, on, you, yeah. on you than it is largely. I mean, it's, it's not great for us in Europe in general. No. Um, but uh, Ireland have a seat at that table. Yes, and so they should mm. because it does have a disproportionate impact uh, on them. Uh, you know, it is the... Well, it's 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 the border between between um, uh, Europe and and the UK uh, post Brexit. So, I mean, Ireland absolutely should have a seat at that table, and I think they've, as I said, been pretty blunt with um, what they're prepared to do, or rather, not prepared to do, in order to make that that work. And I know in the last couple of days, there's been articles, sort of. Um, I think the I think the suggestion is there's sort of leaked analysis uh, by the by the British government about. Uh, what the chances are of a of a hard border Brexit, um, and what the implications of that are, and the suggestion is by their own analysis, it's not a good story, mm. um, and you know maybe a, a gra- you know a greater possibility than what they've publicly been saying. So I have no doubt that at the moment the the anxiety about that is is growing, uh, not not abating. So we'll see what um, 
how Johnson responds to that in coming in, in coming days and weeks. And we can talk about that forever as well. Mm. Let's, you can do a whole podcast on it. Let's yeah. turn to matters a little bit more closer to home. Mm-hmm. You're a minister now in the Daniel Andrews Labor government. Yes. Uh, you're elected uh, in the 2014 election. Uh, just uh, before we talk a bit more about your actual role um, and, and your portfolios, can you think of about of a key moment in your Labor journey in which... Uh, if you had not have done that, you wouldn't be here today. A key moment in my labour journey. Um, yeah, I probably can. It was. Um, I never had any great ambitions. I should preface this by saying I never had any great ambitions to be an elected representative. I loved, you know, obviously highly political, uh, loved the Labor Party and the Labor movement. I had worked in and out of it at both state and federal level um, and really enjoyed those back of house, behind the scenes roles and, and policy work and and the politics involved in, in party operations, but um, never particularly saw myself as being an elected representative. I think the turning point there was going to work for Alan Griffin uh, and this conversation that we had around um, where effectively he, he said to me one day, you know, would you, would you be interested in running? And I just immediately said no. Like it just came out of my mouth. Before he'd even got the sentence out, I just yeah. knocked it on the head and he sort of looked at me with this... <laughs> confused face, I think, because my answer had been so unequivocal. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to go and get myself a coffee and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you that question again. And so we just walked out of the room and I remember thinking, this is weird, you know, my, it sort of forced me to have to think about it. And then when he came back, he said, you know, let's um, unpack that. Why did, why did you re- respond that way? Why so forcefully? And by the time we discussed it, and got to the end of that conversation, he said, so what you're telling me is uh, it's fear that's made you respond that way. And I said, well, yeah, you know, good a reason as any. Mm. Uh, and he said, oh, well, that's no reason not to not to do something. Uh, and it was kind of that idea uh, of, of, of why, you know, of questioning, of saying why not. And I think this is, you know, it probably ties into my portfolios a bit, but I th- do think there is a tendency by women in particular to automatically defer to somebody else and assume that they're more competent, that they're better placed to be able to do, to, to, to do that role or mm. to, um, you know, engage in that task, whatever it might be, tend to st- stand back and let others stand, you know, others stand forward or step forward. And uh, I was certainly guilty of that repeatedly. And that was probably the first time I was uh, probably made overtly aware of the fact that that's what I was doing, but also was kind of asked the question, well, why not you? What you mental processes have... did you then have to go through to address that um, fear? I'm still going through them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that you ever get over it. Yeah. You know? I think, you, you know, it, it's little things like making sure that, you know, if you, if you have an idea, if you, you know, if you're around a table, even it's with your, you know, your cabinet colleagues or your parliamentary colleagues and there's a discussion happening and you have an idea, it's working up uh, the courage to just verbalise it mm. sometimes, you know, and, and convincing yourself that you have a right to give your opinion. And, in fact, that's why you're there. Yeah. You're, you're there to share, share your view and share your opinion. And it's, you know, it's, it's all um, individual incidents and, uh, and opportunities and, and just making, uh, making yourself take them rather than just let them pass you by. And so... Comfort builds over time, I guess, but I do think it's a, it's it's something we probably don't speak about enough. Yeah. Um, you know, our public personas are of these people with enormous and extreme confidence, but often, uh, you know, what happens underneath the surface is is you know does not match the public expression of ourselves that people would see. Yeah, it's funny actually. 
I, I kind of worked that out at one stage in my union and political career that it's actually okay in meetings to say, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone wants to be saying, I, I, I must look like an idiot if I don't know the answer yeah. to that. But and, or ask a question. Yeah. I actually th- still believe this. The most valuable person in any room is the person that asks a lot of questions, even though they might be the person that people eye roll about. <laughs> um, they are always the most valuable person because nine times out of ten they're asking questions that everyone else wants to know the answer <laughs> yeah. to but isn't, isn't brave enough to ask. So glad Gabrielle asked that question. <laughs> I know, I know. And, you know, and I'll be freely admit that I'm not always the person asking the questions. I'm sometimes the person that's sitting there thinking, thank God they asked that. You know, because I've been wondering that too. Yep. And, you know, and sometimes it's a silly thing. Like, you know, and I've seen this happen where it could be a basic question, for example, what does that acronym stand for? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then someone answers it and you see like palpable relief across the faces of everybody around yeah. that table because nobody knew what that acronym stood for. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's things like that, you know, you sort of realise that. Having set up my own business and moving to a new sort of set of circles, and I've, been, <laughs> I've just been hit in the face with a whole bunch of new acronyms. And yeah, I'm, yeah. And you've got to ask. Yeah, yeah. You know, it can be very, very, you know, the outcome can be potentially disastrous yeah. if, you, if you, you know, go off making assumptions. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So you've, um, you're now the minister for a number of portfolios, including uh, f- uh, family violence. Yes. Women yeah. and youth. youth. Uh, key portfolios for an Andrews Labor government. Yes. Uh, let's start with family violence. Mm. Um, obviously, we had the re- the, uh, the Royal Commission in the last term and all yep. of the recommendations that uh, were handed down the Andrews government are going to implement. Yes. Talk us through some of the bigger ones that you've prioritised in uh, your first in as the Minister for. Yeah. Uh, well, for starters, the reform itself is huge uh, and I don't think we've... Um often reflect enough on on the fact that it's world-leading, it's not just nation-leading. Uh, we have jurisdictions around the world who, have got, who are watching us very closely at the moment um, and who are looking to, to learn the lessons from, from the work that we're embarking upon and looking to us to also build the evidence base um, around things, which was a big part of the Royal Commission report um, and its findings. Um, in terms of some of the biggest reforms that... Uh, that I've been working on and, and will continue to prioritise. I mean, I suppose the biggest and one of the most visible ones is the rollout of the Orange Door, our support and safety hubs. We committed to uh, for, to 17 of those across Victoria, and these are effectively uh, hubs that uh, that bring together core services uh, to make sure that women and the predominantly women and children that are impacted by family violence are getting the support they need, but when they need it as well. So this is effectively about closing gaps. You know, the Royal Commission was pretty scathing in its assessment of just how fractured and uncoordinated the system was and the fact that that left vulnerable people open to, to just slipping between the cracks and not getting the help they need or not getting the help they need when they needed it, which can be extraordinarily dangerous in, mm. in situations of extreme family violence. So it was a, you know, this is a new way of operating. And it's not just about the hub itself. It's actually about the network that it builds around it. It's about making sure that there is no wrong door, that no matter where a woman turns up to in the service system, that she's connected um, into the other services she needs. So, you know, the ultimate vision of our reform is that, you know, whether you turn up to a hospital, to a dentist, uh, you know, to a specialist service or you name it, um, that, you know, you were effectively then plugged in, uh, you know, through through an orange door network yep. to the help that you need when you need it. So these are really complex. Um, it's a really complex part of the reform because you're fundamentally asking different parts of the sector to work differently mm. 
they've been so used to working in silos over time and now we're asking them to work together. We've got children and family services literally sitting next to a specialist family violence service and a uh, and a perpetrator intervention sort of related service, you know, whether that be, you know, men's behaviour change or whatever. Mm. Um you know, and, you know, obviously also working hand in glove with, with police and then with the universal service system as well. So it's a very complex um, system to have working and working well. So that's, you know, getting that right is really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got five hubs rolled out so far. We've got another few on the way. And overall, um, by the end of this term, we'll have all 17 and, underway. Uh, both Metro and uh, in regional Victoria? Metro and regional Victoria, you know, and, and each of the other, which also highlights, I guess, the, the, the beauty of the model or the value of the model being that while uh, obviously we want consistency of quality across all 17 sites and regions, you know, we also want them to reflect that the, the communities in which they're embedded so we know that there's particular challenges in a rural and regional community that they won't be in a metro community. And similarly, there's some unique challenges in, in metro communities and in certain metro communities, and there will be in others. So it's really important that uh, the hub itself reflect that uh, and address it, mm. uh, which I think is also the strength of the model. It's, you know, that sort of place-based way of thinking. Uh, and, you know, we know that particularly for women and children in rural and regional Victoria that are offer, often experiencing these issues is, uh, you know, the challenge of the tyranny of distance is obviously a big yeah. one, of often a much thinner service system. So, you know, uh, fewer options available to people in terms of the sorts of services that are often based in these areas and a range of other challenges that, that mean, you know, we need to um, manage risk, I guess, in a, in a slightly different way in those areas than we would in others or, you know, lean on different networks. Yep. Uh, the area of uh, women um, you have uh, over, your, you and your department have overseen an, uh, an ad that came out just recently uh, about a, uh, I guess it's calling out sexual harassment in public spaces yep. the, the ad has uh, a guy who's a little bit creepy and leery yes. <laughs> on a tram uh, and then uh, another bloke's sort of staring at a woman another bloke sort of stands in the way and the guy kind of gives him the you know mm. what are you doing <laughs> you dickhead yeah. uh, that uh, really good ad, very yeah. effective ad. Uh, talk us through yes. the the develop, de- development of that and then the follow-up question is, it seemed to be quite controversial and I don't understand why, but maybe you can explain to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I wish I understood too. Um, so that that ad is the second phase. The ad you're talking about which takes place on, on the train is um, is a part of the Respect Women Call It Out campaign. That's phase two. Phase one, people might remember, was the ad that had the handful of guys sitting around a table and then one of them answers a call from his girlfriend, you assume, and, and he speaks to her quite terribly. And the ad focuses on the sort of internal monologue of one of his friends who kind of notices that he's spoken to his, his girlfriend terribly and, and notes it, thinks about whether he should say anything and kind of thinks, oh, it's sort of not my business, so no, I won't. And then in the end gently kind of says, yeah, that's not, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a, it's a, you know, they're quite low entry points, but that's the whole point about uh, any ad campaign that is about bystander intervention. We don't want people rolling up their sleeves and getting into fights in public spaces. That's not what we're going for. But we are also trying to um, send a very clear message that we have a, a collective responsibility for people's safety in, in public spaces and, and particularly around this issue of, of women's uh, safety in, 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 uh, community spaces, public spaces, whether that be, you know, public spaces or inside their own homes. Mm. And that it also points to the fact that violence against women is a cultural issue. 
that everybody has to be a part of changing. So that latest ad uh, on the on the train, which you've you've adequately um, described, was controversial. Um, I don't really understand why it was either, um, but you know it brought out those voices that do that raised the kind of oh great, so we're not allowed to look at women anymore, uh, mm. which is bizarre um, because obviously the the logical response to that is well no you're not allowed to leer or stare at women in a way that makes people feel uncomfortable that's that's all we're asking you to do we're asking you to treat another human being with respect, and it's basically that simple. Mm. Uh, I think it's, you know, when you've got voices like uh, Mark Latham's joining the fray um, and we've become very accustomed to him, uh, you know, joining the fray on on issues like this, you know, he was one of those uh, men that was, you know, um, was saying really outrageous things in response to the ad. I think his comment was, uh, you know, the guy might just be looking at her thinking, uh, did I root her at uni? That's what he said. That was, that was his response. I read that. Yeah. Um, and it just, it sort of, quite frankly, it just made um, Latham a walking billboard for why we needed the ad campaign in the first mm. place. It just proved the point. Mm. He didn't seem to understand uh, the irony of that, the fact that his own comments were justifying yeah. <laughs> our investment um, very, very soundly. And, and he promptly sort of jumped onto social media and, and trolled me for a while as as well. I heard this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, which is... You was know. there a back and forth or did you just sort of think, oh, I'm just going to let that I think I responded to one um, and then you just realise that, you know, he's just, um, you know, he's he's preaching to his own choir and, and, uh, and there was no value in engaging him on it. I think the ad sta- speaks for itself and stands on its own two feet and, and uh, to be honest, I kind of got to the point where I thought, no, we let the ad... Mm. Um, the ad do the talking because I think it has been incredibly effective. The reach of those ads has been just phenomenal. It's good. Um, the latest data I saw, we're about to get a new set, but uh, from that last one was that half half of Victorians over the age of 18 had seen it already yep. and that was, you know, that was um, a little while ago now. So, yep. um, you know, we know that uh, not only is the reach huge that people are understanding the message that sits behind the ad and are able to articulate what it's trying to what it's trying to say and what it's trying to do, which again is you know for anyone uh, you know in trying to get a message out, that's exactly what you want. Um, you know for people to be able to understand and walk away with a very clear sense of what their expectation of them is. Uh, so ultimately, you know we're always going to in, in issues around gender equality, um, around uh, you know changing cultures, you're always going to have voices that you know, have been, in, you know, at the at the more privileged typically um, end, end mm. of the spectrum in terms of, you know, they've been able to get away with, with behaviour that we're trying to stop for a long time and so naturally they feel like they're losing something out of it. I've got to say, you know, this whole idea with around gender equality that, you know, I mean, Latham isn't alone in, in some of the concerns, if you like, that he was raising, Um he might have been more blunt and crude with the kind of, you know, uh, point he was trying to put forward. Uh, but, you know, we've had others in our political spectrum, the Prime Minister being one of them, who made remarks, I think it was on International Women's Day, about, you know, of course we want equality for women just as long as it doesn't come at anyone else's expense. So what he was effectively saying is, yeah, well, women can be equal, but men aren't giving up anything, mm. yeah? You know, like it was yeah. this kind of, which when you think about it is, it's absurd, like it's yeah. just an, an absurd statement to make. So, 
Yes, he wasn't as crass as Latham, and um, but but we do still have these voices that feel deeply it, uncomfortable yeah. about any discussion around cultural change, particularly discussions that effectively go to, to gender equality. Yeah. And I think we'll continue to, to have to encounter those. But, you know, I've got a lot of faith in the younger generation too that, this, that you know, things change generationally. A lot of, you know, if I was to, if you look at, you know, some of the commentators and, you know, who are in the sort of Mark Latham kind of end of this spectrum, they tend to be white men of a certain age often. Um, so, you know, you'd have to hope that over time those voices start to um, become less relevant and I think they already are. Yeah. Mm. You feel like they're projecting in some ways about their own status. Oh, absolutely. And their own place in the world. Yeah. We think about it, you know, Mark Latham, my God. Mm. Uh I just what a, a career journey, hey? Uh, yeah, it really is. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to draw you in on any comments if you don't want to, but I just sort of think I was thinking about this this morning when we we're doing sort of getting ready for this interview. I just thought, Mark, like, like I, I, I love tradition, and I think one of the great traditions of the Labor Party is that in Canberra, in the federal caucus room, there are the there are a portrait, a photo portrait of every leader of the Labor Party since. Yep. Since Federation, and Mark Latham's up on that wall yeah. amongst some great, mm. great, unfortunately mostly men. Um, if you know, and you can't take that down. But wow, yeah. It, Look at. I think any member of the labor uh, labor movement has a level of discomfort about that, and I think it, you know, wonders what happened. Yeah. Um, was he always like this? Was it a change? Was you know? I mean, they're the questions that seem to fly around all the time in relation to him, you know. Years ago when he was the um, opposition education spokesperson uh, under the Beasley uh, leadership mm. period, he came out to Latrobe University, to the Latrobe Labor Club, and I remember he came and spoke to the Latrobe Labor Club. It was about 20 of us there uh, on education. Right. And uh, it was at the Union Bar, and it, when it finished, he sort of got up and walked off, and we all looked at each other, and we all went, is he, is he crazy? <laughs> Because he's grasped. Well, you've answered the question. Uh, there, yeah, clearly. I, you know, yeah, like I said, like the, it was like his grasp of education portfolio was poor, right? And I know that we were all, you know, you know, student politics, you know, wankers, and we all thought we knew everything. <laughs> but it just you know, there was a couple of there. I was like, mm, I'm not sure if yeah, it is yeah. the full career. And I've, I've heard, you know, I've heard other similar stories of people saying, no, no, there was, you know, it, there were plenty of signs, yeah. even when during his time in, in federal parliament that um, he was an unusual operator to put it politely, uh, but to see him latch on to the kind of, I mean, to see him as a part of One Nation, full stop, it's just yeah. appalling, but to see him latch on to fringe issues and run them the way he, do, he does and to become this kind of shock jock voice in in Australian politics is just really disappointing. And you do have moments where you start to wonder whether he actually um, believes it himself. Mm. You know, you do, I do, I mean, I, I every now and then think, is he, is, you know, is he just doing this because it, Gives him an audience, um, you know, and or is these are these or are core these, values here yeah. that he's driving? I know that's right. Or are these genuinely held views? And yeah. I'm just not sure. Yeah. I haven't worked it out yet. Um, and look, I've got no interest in, in getting to know the guy to a level where I can work that out. No, I don't. I don't need to. Let's just uh, mm. get busy doing good things for yeah. our for our community. Look, let's um, last couple of questions to wrap it up. I uh, wanted to, we had uh, Jamila Rizvi on a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about it was actually during the World Cup, the uh, the FIFA World Cup, Women's World Cup. Um, Matildas hadn't played their first game yet, um, and I want to talk to you a bit about that in a moment. Um, but we talked about equal pay, yeah, 
Um, and I just want to get your thoughts on uh, uh, pay equity yeah. um, and the role that government can play in that space mm. to level that um, that wage playing field. Yep. Pardon the pun. <laughs> yeah. Well, happy to, happy to, to talk about that. Obviously, it's a big part of our of our gender equality piece as a state government. We've, um, I think, been quite uh, bold in our in our work in this space and in our um, statement of our expectations too about uh, not only uh, representation of women but uh, in addressing some of those sort of structural barriers to uh, that lead to bad outcomes for women. women. Uh, obviously we talk about that a lot, you know, bad attitudes towards women lead to bad outcomes for women and you'll hear that said often in the family violence space but it's as relevant in terms of how we regard women in, in a whole range of different settings and, and the outcomes beyond just violence but to, you know, their financial security and retirement, uh, their career progression, all those issues that we know uh, there is huge inequality in um, will later this year be introducing into Parliament a gender equality bill which will um, govern sort of public sector bodies and uh, effectively hold them to account uh, on, on a series of measures uh, around gender equality being, um, uh, you know, representation of women th- organisation-wide. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to see a continuation of of that phenomena that we know is, know exists, which is, you know, sure, half of our organisation is women, but they're all in the lowest paid jobs. Mm-hmm. No, we want to see um, more an even spread of women across positions, including leadership positions, but genuine progression. We want to see uh, those workplaces, you know, develop um, mechanisms and, uh, and and tools that um, that mean that the workplace is more accommodating of women, so flexible work, um, uh, you know, arrangements and the like that that allow women to be in the workforce and a part of the workforce even when they're having um, to go, you know, through, uh, you know, uh, or take career breaks for for child rearing, et cetera. Things that encourage men to take more responsibility for some of those care duties as well. It's not just about what you're doing for women, it's also about what you're encouraging men to do. Um, And a whole range of other things, you know, so it's actually front of mind about how these workplaces operate and how we're actually um, promoting and and, uh, and encouraging women in those spaces, which also goes to uh, addressing things like the gender pay gap through those mechanisms um, and, you know, addressing uh, women's... Well, addressing the financial disadvantage that we know so many women find themselves in, particularly when it comes to retirement. We've all heard the stats around women's superannuation versus men's superannuation. And, you know, we're in a time where it shouldn't... You know, your game plan for financial security as a woman shouldn't be who you marry, you mm. know. Like it's yeah. – we're well beyond that. Um, so we need to make sure that we're actually, um, you know, empowering, enabling women to have the same financial security as their male counterparts. You know? uh, so, you know, there's a lot of work going – and we're leading by example fundamentally. Yeah. Um, here in Victoria. Here in Victoria, yeah. absolutely. Um, but we've, you know, there's a lot more work to do on this space, and particularly in the private sphere. It's, you know, a lot of what we're doing is also trying to, you know, encourage better practices out there in the private sphere. And you know, I was a lawyer in in a past life, and I've seen the structure of law firms, and it's always was just so disheartening to see so many young women at graduate level and and junior levels in the firm, and then look at the partnership and just chock full. It was just it was all men. You know, and and you know that that's just one example, but this is everywhere in our community at the moment, yeah. and it needs to, it needs to be different. And going to your conversation with Jamila around sport, I mean, we've seen just uh, the how popular AFLW has been. The you know, the level of engagement from little girls now in, yeah. in AFL, the the 
how popular uh, women's football has become on the back of AFLW too. You know, it's, it's just gone gangbusters, um, and which does open up that conversation again about, you know, we've got more women at a community level participating in this. We've got an elite level competition now, um, you know, where it, it's popular it's providing great role models for not just little girls but boys too yep. and you've got to remember how important that is. Uh, and hopefully culturally this is all leading to a greater acceptance of women's sport as well. Yeah. But the, the, the controversial question that always lingers behind all of that is is pay mm. and the fact that our female athletes are still, you know, across sports still paid way below what their male counterparts are and it is something that we need to confront, just as we would, you know, pay gaps in any other industry. Mm. Well, strength to your arm in that journey over the next four years anyway. <laughs> yes, it's not an easy one. No, I know. You've got a big mountain yeah. to climb there. But um, I uh, have faith in uh, both uh, your abilities and the abilities of all the people in the Andrews government, um, certainly leading by example. So we wish you the best of luck. And thanks very much for your time on no, the podcast today. Th- thank you for having me.